Good evening, everybody. Uh, tonight we have a fascinating talk. I'm sure you will all find it. Um, we have um, uh, Dr. Professor Dan Shubtan, uh, professor at University of Haifa and one of Israel's deep thinkers. He formerly taught at Georgetown University and at the IDF's National Defense College. He is the author of several books on national security issues and contemporary Middle Eastern history. Tonight, he's going to be talking about Israel's opportunity, national objectives, and major challenges. Um, Professor uh, Shuftan will talk for around a quarter of an hour, and then there will be uh, a, an opportunity for Q&A. So if you have any questions, you can even start writing them in the Q&A box, even during uh, Professor Shuftan's talk, and then we'll get to them uh, as soon as his opening presentation is over. And with that, I leave the floor open. Thank you. Uh, I would like to discuss Israel's national objectives and to point at some major successes and some very serious failures that we've had, but to see it all in the broadest possible perspective. And I would say the following. You must judge Zionism in a different way. You must judge the state of Israel in a different way than you judge other states, because Zionism is a radical revolutionary movement. It is not something that is only focused on the welfare of this particular generation. It wanted to revolutionize the Jewish people and did revolutionize the Jewish people. So the standards are very different. And what we demand from ourselves goes far beyond what usually countries, states demand of themselves. And I would say that on most major issues, we've had a fascinating success and unbelievable success. We managed to bring the Jewish people back to history. Uh, for 2000 years, it was a potential of a people, but not a functioning people. We managed to concentrate the majority of the Jewish people in its ancestral uh, homeland. We managed to establish here in Israel a pluralistic society, an open society. We provide security in a very hostile environment, not without problems, but with great successes concerning the ability of Israel to defend itself. We've been able to withstand unfriendly and sometimes hostile international circumstances. We managed to establish ourselves in the Middle East. We did not lose. And there was, afraid, there was the fear that we would lose the Jewish creativity in spite of the fact that we are no longer marginal uh, people, we have perhaps the only combination that you can find between the ability to be Sparta vis-a-vis -vis our enemies and essence inside and to our friends. We managed to combine individualism, sometimes extreme individualism, with a very strong sense of solidarity and strong families and a lot of children. We have provided economically for Israel and perhaps one of the most important things, the constructive attitude, the constructive focus of the Israeli society, namely constantly building new structures, adjusting ourselves to the challenges of the 21st century are major successes. So on most issues, the success is phenomenal. On two issues, and I will elaborate on them in a minute, we have failed. 
But what I want to discuss beyond this success and failure is two particular issues, two particular uh, objectives of Israel, where only recently we have catapulted ourselves to a new level. In other words, Israel that for a long time was building something finally succeeded in this uh, structure. And we are now in a much better situation in terms of being able to defend ourselves and secure our future. Because we are speaking immediately after the elections and we have gloom and doom among many Israelis and particularly among observers outside of Israel, let me say one thing very, very clearly. I'm not at all concerned about the functioning of the Israeli society. Now, have all democracies around the world serious problems? Are they functioning not very well in the United States, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in all democracies all over the world? Yes. Do we have some of these problems in Israel? Yes. Is the Israeli political system dysfunctional, in, particularly in the last four or five years with elections, five elections following one another in a very short period of time? Yes. But we have managed to demonstrate that the Israeli society is so strong and the Israeli institutions are so strong that we met four major crises with relative success, I would say better than most democracies. We've had the health success of the health uh, crisis of COVID. We had the economic crisis. We had a unique security crisis, more than one in Israel. We had a political crisis and we came out of it better than most democracies, in some cases, better than all democracies. In spite of the fact that we have two populations, Arab and ultra-Orthodox, that are extremely difficult, and we'll discuss them in a moment. They're a burden to every success that Israel has managed to achieve. But we've had great success on dealing with the pandemic. We had great success, relatively speaking, in dealing with the world economic crisis. For instance, we have around 5% inflation, while you have 8 to 10% inflation in Europe and in the United States, we have very little unemployment. We met extremely difficult security problems with relative success, no solutions, but good responses to security problems. And in spite of the malfunctioning of the political system, the Israeli democracy is functioning in the sense that the legitimacy of the government is not questioned. The government can function again thanks to a very strong society and strong institutions, uh, health insurance, the Ministry of Finance, the Bank of Israel, the Israeli intelligence community, the Israeli army. So we're basically functioning relatively well in spite of the political difficulties. And one thing, this is relevant also to one of the most important successes that I will discuss in a moment, we managed not to miss a major opportunity. The previous government, the uh, uh, Netanyahu government, started the Abrahamic Accords with the support of the Trump administration. 
And later, the Bennett-Lapid government managed to continue it, to strengthen it, to deepen it with the assistance of the Biden administration. So basically, this is functioning well. Where have we failed? We have failed on something that I consider to be particularly important, namely when it comes to the constraints on our constructive uh, efforts. Zionism is a great success because it was constantly building. And we have two failures in this regard. A, the strengthening of the ultra-Orthodox community, because we are speaking about a part of the society that is not contributing to the building of Israel. They're a burden rather than an asset, and many of them don't work don't serve in the army, are not contributing to Israel, are uh, taking a lot of the economic resources of Israel in a way that most Israelis have very great difficulty with. If their proportion in the Israeli population will grow, at a particular point, Israel will stop being a success because they are not contributing, they're not educated to, they don't want to be employable, their the rabbis want them to be unemployable so that they can control them. This is one problem. The other problem where we have not found a good answer is to disengage from the Palestinians so that our resources are not wasted on dealing with the Palestinians. It is very difficult because the Palestinians are rejecting, rejecting every offer for a historic compromise because they're extremely violent, because they're not willing to build their own nation. They are, this national movement is a failure. It is a flawed national movement. So maybe it's not on us, but we must find a way to disengage from the Palestinians, even if they don't want to disengage from us. So these are the two failures that I think we've had. But we've had recently two major successes that I want to emphasize. And here we've catapulted Israel to a new reality. First of all, for the first time, Israel is a full-fledged regional power. We used to be very strong economically, financially, technologically, but we couldn't maneuver between the different forces in the Middle East. And for this reason, we were not a full-fledged regional power. And recently, with the Abrahamic Accords, but far beyond it, Israel managed to position itself in a completely different uh, uh, position of a country that is essential to the security of this region as perceived by the Arabs themselves. Arabs have realized since the Arab Spring that A, the Arabs are very weak, B, Iran is very aggressive and strong. C, since the Obama administration, you can't trust the Americans beyond a certain point to come and help the Arabs defend themselves against the Iranians. D, that Israel is dependable and will fight Iran under any circumstances, because from an Israeli point of view, we must uh, resist. We must prevent Iran from hegemonizing this region. And this recognition has substituted the reality of the Middle East where it was perceived as being guided, ruled by the Arab-Israeli conflict, 
And now we have an Arab-Israeli coalition against the radicals, primarily against Iran, to some extent against Erdogan. There are very few radicals, the Iranians, the Syrians, the Palestinians, the, um, the uh, Turks in a way, not perhaps at the moment in a very open way, but potentially. So everybody in the region who wants to fight against the radicals understands that Israel is the most important asset that they can have. So we have an Arab-Israeli coalition. And this also changes Israel in the international arena because everybody realizes that if you want to function in the Middle East, you cannot disregard Israel. That Israel is not a burden, but an asset. If you want to talk even to the Saudis, it's much better that you also speak to the Israelis because the Saudis and other Arabs trust Israel more than they trust others, because Israel is willing, able, and actually doing it, fighting against the Iranians in a way that weakens them and make, makes it much more difficult for them to hegemonize the region. So both on the um, regional level and on the international level, Israel is in a new era now, of a country that can maneuver in the region. Different Arabs are competing who will get Israel on their side when they disagree among themselves. We can work together with others in the region in a way that helps the American policy in the region. If Europe had a policy in the Middle East, Israel could help Europe too, because from a European point of view, it would be a calamity if Iran hegemonizes the Middle East, so that we are in a position where everybody must recognize that Israel was upgraded in a very major way. We have serious problems. Having Iran as an enemy is much more dangerous than having Arabs because the Iranians are much more capable than the Arabs and you have this very dangerous marriage between a strong and capable society and a barbaric regime. We had it 80 years ago. It's not as bad now, but this combination is very dangerous. We have another problem inside Israel. Arabs in Israel, the Arab citizens in Israel have radicalized. They use much more violence against Israel and we have a serious problem. But the problems that I manage, that I mentioned can be managed by Israel. In other words, I can see a very good way of dealing with all three problems or four problems that I've mentioned. When it comes to the ultra-Orthodox, you need to persuade them and not necessarily in a gentle way to work and to be an asset to the country and not a burden. You can do it when they're not in government. And there is a very wide consensus in Israel so that you can establish a government without the ultra-Orthodox ultra and without radicals on both sides. When it comes to the problem of the West Bank, we don't have time to discuss it here, but Judea and Samaria with all the historic importance and the um, security importance of it, you can find a way that will not allow the Palestinians to use it as a springboard against Israel, but on the other hand, not to be present there. When it comes to Israeli Arabs, I think that law enforcement is the first step. In other words, and here I would like to conclude, we are in historical terms, 
we are winning. In other words, we still have problems. We did not succeed on everything. But if you look at A, the history, B, the trajectory of what is happening now, on almost all things that are important, we are on a very positive trajectory. And even where we have not succeeded, it depends to a very large extent on us, on recognizing the magnitude of the problem and willing to focus our resources in order to deal with the problems that we did not yet find a good response to. So if you look at Israel in the perspective of 150 years of Zionism and the state of Israel, then the uh, outlook, at least the way I perceive it, is extremely positive. On this positive note, and believe it or not, from the Middle East, even positive things can come out sometimes. On this positive note, let me stop here and open the floor for Q&A or whatever you see fit. Thank you very much. Uh, we have quite a lot of questions, but I'm going to uh, ask the first one. Um, as this is um, a webinar for the uh, Israel Victory Project, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, do you believe that there is a possibility of preventing, defeating um, Palestinian rejectionism of is uh, the Jewish people's right to sovereignty in their ancestral and indigenous homeland? Do you believe that it is possible? And if so, how would, how would that happen? I think we should recognize that we already achieved the victory. I mean, we have a strong Jewish state that is becoming stronger and stronger, and the Palestinians are stuck where they're stuck. Now, will they stop being a nuisance? No. Can this nuisance sometimes erupt? Yes. Is it unpleasant? Yes. But is it undermining the basic success story of Zionism? Certainly not. The very existence and constant strengthening and constant improving of the quality of life and practically everything else in Israel, in spite of the Palestinians, is the victory. We cannot go beyond damage control on a number of issues, but in most things in life, we don't have solutions. Is there a solution for poverty? No. Is there a solution for crime? No. But you can bring it down dramatically from an unacceptable level to an acceptable level, very often by the use of force or by the use of smart policies. You can bring down crime by a good law enforcement system. You can bring down poverty by a welfare state system of one kind of another, but you can't solve the problem. The fact that the Palestinians want to continue to be a problem, the fact that there is something deeply flawed in the Palestinian national movement is on them. It is a, a nuisance, a major nuisance, if you want, for us, but it did not prevent all the successes that I've just discussed, including the thing they wanted particularly to prevent. They wanted to prevent Israel from becoming a local, a regional power in the Middle East, working with Arabs against radicals. They are part of the radical camp. So their attempt to prevent it may, may be succeeded in large portions of Arab public opinion, but you can go beyond it. I wish Arabs would also love us. Okay, it would be nice. 
But is it absolutely necessary for Israel? No. We can cooperate with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates, with Morocco. We can cooperate in a very deep way. We can have a strategic uh, understanding with them, even if people don't like us. So they don't like us. Let me put it this way. Jews are also not always liked. And uh, I wish they were liked, but you can do whatever you see fit, even if you're not liked by many Arabs. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Steve. Why, is, why do you think Israel is so inept in prosecuting the propaganda war? Um, do you have anything to say about why Israel is failing, uh, according to some, uh, in making its case around the world? Uh, there are a number of reasons. One of them is that there is a fashion now that I find repulsive to assume that if somebody is weak, he must be just. And uh, also to assume that somebody, if somebody has a lot of pigments, he must be just and he must be, and, and he is eternally the victim and the victim must be right. And okay, it's, it's a fashion. I hope it will pass, but there is very little we can do about it. The second element is anti-Semitism. I wish we could get rid of it. It is not the most important component in the attitude towards Israel, but to a very large extent, we have a substitution of hating the individual Jew by, by hating the Jewish state and assuming that every lumpa umpa has the right of self-determination except the Jews. So they say, why should there be a Jewish state? I mean, every umpa lumpa can have a state because it is the self-evident right of self-determination, but the Jews have to explain and they have to, um, and they have to apologize. Also, we have a disproportionate part of uh, the Israeli uh, population and Jews who, um, have this obsession with feeling guilty. And if somebody feels guilty, then somebody who's not willing to take responsibility will use it. And what we have here is one people who will never take responsibility for anything, the Palestinians, particularly the Arabs in general, and one people that insists on being guilty because it was raised by Jewish mothers. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why. There is uh, this distortion among Jews that they enjoy feeling guilty. And when you combine the two, it is uh, actually working very strongly. Also, Israelis are not very good at it, but I don't think that this is the most important component. The most important component is that people are not willing to listen to reason because of the fashions that I spoke about. And one last point, international organizations are inherently distorted and very often prostituted because they are built on the system of one country, one vote, with a majority of countries where you don't have one person, one vote. So you have, for instance, in the United Nations, a majority of authoritative states, dictatorial states, sometimes even barbarian states, and they're the majority. And because they're the majority, every international organization is almost always anti-Israel because the largest groups of Arab states and Muslim states have a coalition with others. So if you bring all these things together, it will explain it. 
it is not because we don't have good arguments. It's because that people won't listen to good arguments because of the numbers of reasons that I've mentioned here. Thank you. Um, there's an anonymous question. Is the US losing its influence in the Middle East to the point that it will no longer have significant influence in the future? Well, uh, President Obama did his best to lose influence everywhere in the world because when it comes to foreign policy, practically every decision that he has taken or most of the decisions that he has taken were counterproductive for the American-led world order. Um, we have seen in America very little understanding of what is happening around the world. And therefore, we have in some fields, a, a lowering of American influence. This is coupled also with the rise of China that challenges the United States. And a lot of the strengthening of China was a miscalculation of America letting China strengthen itself at the expense of the United States, not just the United States, but also Western countries in general. So we have alongside, we have this problem. So is it true? Yes, but is the United States still the only countries that will, can provide the structure for the existing world order? And even the Chinese don't want it at the moment to substitute it by a Chinese world order because they benefit from the way it is today. Uh, I am longing for American presidents and secretaries of state and national security advisors of the caliber of Nixon and Kissinger. I think they were the best. I think the worst were Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama. And uh, now we are having something that is reasonably much better than Obama because there is a recognition of the danger of China there is an American response that is basically correct on the issue of the Ukraine. The Ukraine war was a wake-up call for many, including uh, um, Americans, particularly Europeans, but including also Americans. So basically, we are now in a situation that is not as bad as we were under Obama. Thank you. Uh, we've got a few questions about <clears throat> Iran. Um, some ask what you see will be the end result of the demonstrations, of the uprising, if you will, and others ask what do you believe is the risk of war with Iran uh, and its proxies? First of all, concerning the uh, upheaval in Iran now, uh, it is serious, it is very serious. It is spread around Iran, it uh, covers uh, a lot of people, who are actually disenchanted with this regime, with the revolutionary regime. It comes on top of other eruptions that we have in Iran. I don't know, and nobody can know, when this will reach a kind of um, critical mass that will bring down this regime. I would not expect it to be very soon but I'm willing to be surprised on both ends, that it may take decades and it will happen tomorrow. I, at the moment, I don't see indications that mean that in the very near future, it is going to crumble, but there is no prediction of mine that I would be more happy to be proven wrong 
than this prediction, because once Iran gets rid of the barbarians that at the moment are leading Iran, Iran can be the best partner for Israel, for Europe, for the United States in the Middle East. This is a very capable people with the ability to fit into the, to, to find responses to the challenges of the 21st century. And Iran is a very promising proposition for the long run when we get rid of the barbarians, but I don't know. The number one danger of Iran is hegemonizing the region. And the, even the nuclear instrument is only an instrument in order to become immune from the response to the attempt to hegemonize the region. If Iran hegemonizes the region and has control over the oil, the gas, the money, the international waterways, the markets, and perhaps even take uh, charge of Mecca and Medina and have an impact on Muslims all over the world, this can be enormously dangerous, existentially dangerous for Israel. It will be enormously dangerous for Europe and the Europeans are not willing to recognize how dangerous and for the whole world. These, this barbaric regime is a danger to the world. And the only way to deal with it is to break it. If you negotiate it, you have failed it already by negotiating with it. You cannot try to appease it. You can only break it, humiliate it, whatever the civilized world and Iran have a zero sum game. Whatever is bad for Iran under this regime is good for the world. And when you get rid of this regime, then you can help Iran, then you can try to reach uh, understandings with Iran, then Iran can be a constructive power. But at the moment, it is a zero-sum game. We only have one minute left, and we have lots and lots of questions, uh, quite a few about on the eve of a potential new government. If you could, in a shorter amount of time as possible. Can you give us your hopes and concerns for the incoming government? My major concern is the strengthening, the, the enormous strengthening of the most negative element in the Israeli society, namely the ultra-Orthodox community that is not willing to work and to serve in the army, and that is basically living off us and at the expense of our uh, sweat and our blood. Uh, if an ultra-Orthodox wants to have an, uh, uh, his way of life, but work, pay taxes, serve in the army, I have no problem whatsoever. Everybody can uh, choose a way of life that he wants. But their insistence to, be, to have a parasitic existence inside Israel and the enormous rise of their proportion in the population. We are speaking about 6.6 .6 children per family, and they're kept ignorant purposely by their rabbis in order to make them unemployable. This is, to me, the number one threat of this government. I also think that it is a mistake to try to establish Israel more deeply into the uh, heartland of Judea and Samaria. I would not like to annex it into Israel. And this government, particularly the Smotrich, is uh, inclined in this direction. They try to impose on secular Israelis who built Israel, a, a religious life will fail. But I think the attempt to do it will cause a lot of 
harm to Israel. But I think that we will see some kind of moderation. What we see at the moment are the worst parts. And it is at least my hope that even when it comes to very sensitive issues like the judicial system, there will be a reform, but not an attempt to destroy the system. And my prediction is that when it comes to this, this is one of the most important issues. Here, we will have a compromise that will, on the one hand, distance itself from the radical attitude of Aaron Barak that we've seen from the 1990s without going to the other extreme and uh, imposing on Israel a system that will be harmful. I think we have a good chance of reaching a, of reaching a compromise there. Whatever my concerns, I don't think there is the slightest danger to the Israeli democratic system. We have seen now years where everything depended on half a member of parliament and everybody recognized the legitimacy of the process and the process worked. Would I like it to work better? Yes, not only in Israel, but in all democracies. By the way, I think in the United States, the structural problems are by far deeper than in Israel but structural problems in all democracies, unfortunately, are now the order of the day. With that semi-optimistic uh, um, note, I'd like to say thank you very much, Professor Shuftan, for your time and enlightening uh, presentation uh, tonight and all those of you who, who took part and participated. Uh, just to let you know, on Wednesday, I will be giving my weekly Israel uh, inside a webinar, where I'll be giving a behind-the-scenes look at Israeli politics, um, which is at uh, three o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And with that, I'd like to say thank you again, and good night from Israel. <laughs>